0: Welcome back to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. And couldn't be more excited today. We're starting Financial Literacy Month. The entire month of April, we'll be talking about financial literacy, having different guests on, talk about their experience with financial literacy, maybe a few companies talking about how they help people with financial literacy. And I'm just really excited because this is something that we're passionate about, something that we're trying to make sure that we give information to, people that they need and that they can use. And today we're going to be joined by a special guest, one of my friends, my mentor, someone I look up to, someone that's been in the industry for a very, very long time, and just an incredible wealth of knowledge. And today we're joined by the one and only Jason Wank.
1: as, far as it, There's actually a, two Jason Wangs. There's some guy that's like a cyclist in Minnesota that shares my name. Emily, it's a pleasure to join you and huge fan of your
0: show. So it's a pleasure to be on. Yeah. So I mean, when I was thinking about this, well, okay, so the one of the two Jason Wakes that's out there, right? <laughs> but when I was thinking about this, I was like, man, you know, just to have you on the show, because I was like thinking, I was like, have I heard Jason on a bunch of podcasts? I've never like heard you on another podcast, just kind of talking about stuff. So I was kind of like, I don't know if he'll come on. So one, I just want to thank you for coming on. And then two, man, there's so many different ways we could take the conversation. So I just, you know, with financial literacy being the month of April, as I think about financial literacy for myself and how where I've come in my journey, I can only think about people that want to hear the financial story of your journey and how you came to where you are now. And I'm excited for you to share that today with us. But before we get started, for those people that don't know who you are, would you mind giving them a little background of who Jason Wank is?
1: Sure. Happy to. So, you know, if you don't see me on a lot of podcasts, it just might be because... I'm no good at them and you're crazy for having me on. So I guess we'll (laughs) test that theory. But in terms of background today, I'm a fintech entrepreneur. I'm the founder and CEO of Altruist, but you know, that's definitely not what I was. So I grew up in a really small farming community in West Michigan. I was raised in the 1980s and 90s. So most of my youth, there's no such thing as internet for most of my youth, you know, not until I was probably a teenager, 15, 16 years old when I first got and kind of got that exposure. Even computers were pretty rare for people to have, like a home computer back in those days. And in some ways, there's a lot of beautiful things about growing up in a small community. But we didn't have like cable TV, like there was no 24-hour news, there was no social media. So in some ways, it was a beautiful way to be brought up. Basically, what you knew was the community you were in. And the community I was in was, again, a lot of hardworking, good people. You know, there's this saying about people being Midwest nice. Now that I've lived around the country, I tend to... Understand that better. Like people just have, I think, generally good values in that area. People treat each other well. If somebody's struggling, other people in the community step up and help them. I think, in every sense, the word community I mean, that's kind of how I grew up was in that type of community. And I will say there was really not much money in that community. So, when we talk about financial literacy, there were maybe a couple people that we thought were like rich, you know, so to speak. But I think, in the grand scheme of things, they weren't. They just maybe were a little more successful than the rest, but it was an area that, you know, money wasn't a big thing. It wasn't about who had it and who didn't, because frankly, almost no one had it It made life really simple in a lot
0: of ways. And so like, there's a lot of things that happen in between right now. You're telling us where you're at now and how you grew up. You being where you're at now, I'm thinking about this in my head, like, what were money conversations about like around your house when you were a kid growing up?
1: So I think like, it might be helpful to have some context, because I think it's funny when, you know obviously on a podcast if you don't people don't know people you know i would say that i would guess i don't know i don't i don't know i don't know how to like peg myself financially these days but i would just say that i never in a million years never in my life did i ever think i would be successful and have some of the things and opportunities that i do today i said, I don't say that in a braggadocious way just to say that like as a kid i didn't have those ideas because people didn't have money for the most part people didn't talk about money for the most part and so there really weren't a lot of conversations around money i do know that if you wanted something bad the one thing that we were definitely taught was you had to work for it and so i got this kind of funny story i love telling it because it like makes me sound like i'm like 100 years old but i wasn't i'm not but my first job was shoveling cow manure at a farm that was about a mile away from my house it was the closest house to my house so where i grew up i mean literally like homes were in many cases miles apart or half a mile or more and I had to walk uphill both ways in the snow to do this so no shit, right? Cause there was a, a big goalie between my house and this farm. So if I wanted to get like a pair of shoes, right? cause so I wanted to play in the basketball team and I needed to save up some money for that. Like I had to walk, you know, again, down the goalie, then up the hill and Michigan's not exactly California. So it was pretty cold a lot of the year. And then the job was to shovel manure and it was, not a glamorous job. I can't remember what I got paid, but it was like around $2 an hour, maybe whatever minimum wage was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And that's like my first exposure to money was this idea of like wanting stuff. Right. The other thing I remember, and, you know, just, just shows the naivety to me is like, I didn't understand, you know, like if we didn't have money, there's plenty of times we didn't have the money to do certain things or buy certain things that we wanted. And I say this with the utmost respect for my mother, who was like the hardest working, most amazing woman I could ever imagine. And she largely raised my brother and sister and I without a lot of help most of our life. And I remember like making comments like, hey, I really want this thing. And whatever that thing was, my mom was saying, I don't know, I don't think we have the money for that. And I would just be like, well, can't you just write a check for it? Like, I didn't realize that if you wrote a check, you had to have the money in the bank, you know, to have the check clear. And so there's a lot of like naivety around money, like at a young age. I mean, but again, the common thread was sort of like, if you want it, one, we good chance we don't have the resources to get everything we want, so you better learn how to work hard. And the only jobs there were were jobs that required hard work. It was definitely character building work, I will say. And that was kind of the early part of my money journey, you know. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older, right, then we start to think about, you know, kind of how money works. I remember for me the first kind of big thing I wanted. That was more than like a pair of shoes or a pair of jeans or something, which people keep, keep in mind, like for the youngsters listening back then you could get a nice pair of shoes for like, you know, maybe 50 bucks, you know, it wasn't like these drops now where they're out of control. Right. So my first big, big purchase, I really wanted to get a moped, right? It sounds kind of stupid in some respects, but I wanted a moped because where I grew up was so rural that if you wanted to ever see any friends or have any kind of social life, again, keep in mind, there was no technology driven social life. You had to go see people. And it was a long bike ride. If I wanted to go 10, 12 miles, you know, like that was not real fun each way on like a single speed bike. So I wanted to get a moped and back then you could get a moped for a few hundred bucks, right? An old used moped from like classifieds or something, yeah, you know, a few hundred bucks. So I need to make enough money for that moped. And actually what's ironic is I wanted to get the moped so that I could actually get a job that paid better than the shovel and manure job. And then once I had the moped, I realized I was only a couple of years from turning 16 and I was like, boy, I would, I'm sure love to have a car parents weren't buying people cars where I'm from, you know, like if you wanted a car, you had to go buy your own car. Yeah. And I was really, really fortunate that I did get a little bit of help from my family. These weren't like big dollar amounts we're talking about, but my stepdad at the time said he would match me dollar for dollar that I saved up. So if I wanted to buy a $2,000 car. If I could save a thousand, he'd bash me a thousand bucks to help me buy a car. And let me tell you, like I worked my ass off to get that thousand bucks and buy that car. But this was how I learned money, right? It was, what's the goal? These were micro goals. There were things, right? It was never about saving or investing. I had no clue how I didn't have a bank account back then, right? I would cash the checks, right? <laughs> and then you'd hoard the cash and then you'd spend the cash. Mm-hmm. That's how it would work. And even cashing the checks, like we only had one bank within probably 10 miles of where I grew up. So you cashed your checks at like the grocery store or the gas station. It's interesting how different you know, certain things are in these days. But that was kind of like, you know, again, how it started. And I think that it wasn't until I was out of high school and moved out of the area that I finally got exposure to things like savings and a bank account and a what was a debit card. And let me tell you, those were horrible experiences because I had no money knowledge. And so I fell into a lot of the same traps that probably a lot of young people fall into where I went off to college. I was very fortunate to have some scholarships, but I still did take a small student loan just because everybody's like, Hey man, you get a student loan. <laughs> yeah. What is that? Should I have one? Well, absolutely. You should have one. If you get a student loan, you can buy all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, Oh, that sounds cool. I didn't even use it for school. I just bought stuff with it. And then you're walking around and there's like, get a discover card. You just sign these forms here. And it's like, Oh cool. Now I've got like four credit cards, which makes no sense when you're 18 years old, you know, and don't really have much income. And then I introduced this concept of an overdraft, you know, and for those who know what an overdraft is, God bless you. I lived in that overdraft for like the next five years of my life, you know, where I had like these little credit cards that I had were maxed out. And I think I had a $300 overdraft initially, which eventually turned into 600. And honestly it was experiences like that, you know, kind of shaped, I think a lot of how I think today about money. And unfortunately all of the financial literacy that I learned, I learned it the hard way, Mm -hmm. work hard, buy stuff. Mm -hmm. Stuff is what motivated me to make more. As soon as I got exposed to credit, I used the credit to buy stuff that I oftentimes didn't need. It's a bad idea to buy it. And then it took years right, to kind of dig out of that hole. I wouldn't take any of it back, actually. I look back now and I realize the blessing of all of those decisions. And some of them were, again, at the time, I'm sure there's people out there who have this feeling. I remember being like, man, if somehow I just had like a windfall and won like a hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and I truly believe like, that would change my life. Mm-hmm. just having a hundred dollars. So because I was tired of being negative $580 into that $600 overdraft and having to like figure out like, cool, I got 18 bucks to spend. What am I going to do with this? You know? And no one was paying my rent for me. No one was paying my car insurance for me. No one was paying for anything for me. Like everything was all on me. And that was one of the best ways I think for a young person, you know, fortunately it was somewhat controlled. Like I didn't get like hundreds of thousands over my head. But I got real uncomfortable and getting real uncomfortable for me, it was a motivator, right? Not everybody has that. Some people just get kicked when they're down. And I tried to pick myself up for my boots, you know? But yeah, man, very long-winded answer for you, Emlyn. But oh, no, you're that's good. 20 years of figuring out money.
0: And yeah, it was tough. You know, people know the people that are tuning in that may know you already, know you now and know where you're at to hear you talk about you're coming up, like, you know, having an overdrawn bank account, work hard, the work ethic. And I think like some of the things that you said you wouldn't change it, you know, for the world. And I think that's awesome because you're formed in fire, right? I think things are formed in fire. And when you have, you know, sometimes it's the fire that you made yourself and you just have to walk through what you had to do. But I think about it as you were going through these things and digging yourself out of the hole that you created, I think there were some principles and things that you were able to find in those moments that actually continue to help you build if I'm not mistaken, right?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. So a few things like as I look back now, obviously, it's easy to say today, I can tell you at that time, I definitely wouldn't have guessed that someday down the road, I would be saying, Oh, I would never change a thing. Of course, back then, I would pray for a thing. You know, I wasn't a religious person, but I prayed about wanting more money, you know, because mm-hmm. it wasn't comfortable. And I had a kid when I was 20 years old, it was really uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of stuff, I all of a sudden I had other people's lives depending on me, and I had maxed out credit cards and 19 bucks left on my overdraft, you know, like this wasn't comfortable. But I'll say like a couple of things, you know, one is I was determined in those early days that if I accept the fact that I could be a failure and I was okay with that, meaning I might not make it, like I might not be like this really successful business person someday. That's okay. But I'm not going to not reach those goals because I didn't try. Because mm-hmm. so I think is a mindset thing that I was determined I would not fail by lack of effort. And so I see a lot of people, I try to, you know, teach my kids these things now, but I see some people they will be like, Yeah, you know, I don't have a job right now because you know, there's no good jobs. And I'm like, listen, you know, shoveling cow shit is not a good job, you know, but that was the job I had. And so I just worked my ass off at it to make enough to get ahead a little bit. I do agree there needs to be better jobs. Like there needs to be a big supporter of a higher living wage. I think that it's Easy for people to get stuck in poverty if, if they don't even have the means to work themselves out of poverty, right? But I definitely wasn't going to fail because of lack of effort, right? So whatever the means were that I had available to me, I was like, well, I'm just gonna work really hard. The other thing that I don't know where this even came from, but I mean, I still have this to this day. And it's just something I think if people can get this right in their mind, it's gonna help them a lot. I've never felt that I deserved anything. So I hear some people talk about, like, yeah, you know what, I went ahead and put this vacation on a credit card because I deserve it. And I don't know why this bothers me, but it's always bothered me. Instead, so I looked at things, I'd be like, no, I'm going to do something because I earned it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if I'm going to book that vacation, I want to be able to say, yeah, I went ahead and booked that vacation because I earned it, not because I deserve it. Because a lot of times that like, we can fool ourselves into what we believe we deserve. And then that just hurts us financially. Like it's just a mindset thing. Like it's unfortunate because of course we all want to have like a little retail therapy from time to time, but can dig you into such a deep hole and like, in a cliche saying, but, you know, step one of getting out of a hole is to stop digging, mm-hmm. you know? And so when I found myself back in those days and I was in debt, credit cards maxed out, living in an overdraft, like the first thing that I could control was don't keep digging the hole, stop digging the hole, right? So I got real tight with how I spent my money, you know, I got real, real conservative with spending so that I could have a budget that was right side up. And then if I was gonna make a big purchase, I had to save the money to make the purchase, right? So I earned it, I didn't deserve it, and then pay it back later at 30% of your APR, right? Which just costs you like 10 times as much money to take that trip that you thought you deserved, right? I'd rather earn it first. So those are some of the things like when I look back at like, yeah, that formed in fire. Again, I wish I could say I had some like money mentor that like taught me some of these things, but you know, I was just good enough at math to realize that I had to stop digging you know, I was never gonna let somebody outwork me. And then I stopped worrying about how I felt like I deserved things. Right. I just realized I don't deserve anything. I'm just going to earn stuff from this point forward. And I'll say that like, you know, along the way I took a lot of risk too. So people, whenever they see like an entrepreneur who's had some success and has built some businesses, a lot of times people ask that person, well, what did you do that made you so successful? And they'll try to tell you about 10, 15 different things. Let me just be the first person to... Well, I'll be the first person. I'll just be one of hopefully many people that admits that, look, I took a lot of risks. I think they were calculated risks. I also had a lot of luck on my side, right? So there were a bunch of advantages that I had that I was born with that I didn't ask for. They just were advantages I had. There's just some pure luck, right? That you, know, you will sometimes get. And I'm happy to admit that, right? I think that's actually an important part about people learning about money and finance is that we don't always have full control there's a lot of things we don't have control of and then we should also understand we definitely should never get overconfident you know because that's a great way to make really bad choices financially and get yourself into a lot of trouble so having that kind of mindset early on was really important i still have it to this day like i don't take it for granted one bit but i will say like all the stuff could have went wrong <laughs> you know like we could not be having this conversation because i could have started two or three ventures that failed and didn't end up becoming successful and didn't create a lot of opportunity And if that was the case, right, you know, you always have an option of quitting. It's too hard, doesn't work, right? Whatever. Or you pick yourself back up and try again, right? And definitely not all my ideas have been successes, right? You have to
0: be willing to fail in order to succeed, for sure. When I'm hearing you talk about this stuff, and what I think is like, when did you feel like, you know, you were from working and everything, you'd gotten enough financial literacy to begin to make some moves, whether it was in your business or with your personal life, but When did you feel that? And what was the first thing that you did after that?
1: So a couple of things, I mean, and I think it's good just to be transparent about this stuff. This is not me advocating everybody goes out and does this, right? But I think it's important people hear a little bit about this journey. So I was fortunate to be good at math. I mentioned that before, right? That that was a useful skill in learning how to write software and build software. And so I was able to get a job essentially in finance, but initially really more from a software developer perspective. It's a non-traditional finance, but it got me exposure to the financial services industry. And that's when I first started like kind of thinking about, wow, I didn't even know what the stock market was, to be honest with you. Like I didn't know people that had stocks growing up because there were no stock brokers where I'm from, mm-hmm. you know, you had a banks, you know, people bought CDs. That's about it, you know, mm-hmm. but that's kind of the extent of savings account CDs, you know, that type of thing. But getting that first job, I was 20 years old. I got hired by Morgan Stanley. And so I did a deep dive into like trying to understand like, what does a company like Morgan Stanley do? How does this money stuff work? Right. And I got a little exposure. Now, all that being said, having the knowledge meant nothing. If you don't have any money, so you could be the smartest investor in the world. If you have no money to invest, it doesn't really do any good. Mm-hmm. So my attention started to then drive towards how do I make money? <laughs> you know, Because I, in order to do something with the money, you have to have the money, you know? So mm-hmm. I kind of started that journey. Eventually I decided, you know what? Most people who are really successful they own their own business. Now you can certainly still be extremely successful not owning your own business, but my mindset, just sharing it where I was coming from was I felt like I'd much rather own my own business. I like how these business owners operate. That seems like something I want to do. Business ownership's hard, right? I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a high percentage fail. And I was willing to take that risk, right? Because the one thing that's cool when you're 20 and you have nothing to lose is you got nothing to lose, right? You got time on your side. So I was willing to take some bets and take some risks. And one of those bets was I bet on myself. And I bet on myself with no money, no family money, no contacts, no business partner. I was going to become a financial advisor who was basically in his early 20s, was broke, living in his overdraft, and didn't know anybody with any money. And this is how a lot of people, Emma and I have both talked about this. Like, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things when you get hired as a financial advisor or do start a financial planning type business is people will be like, well, serve your natural market. Who do you know with money? Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if someone asked me to do a project 100 out of it, I had to make the names up, you know, I didn't know hundred people that had like over a hundred dollars, you know, <laughs> like these were not ideal like, investment clients. So I had to kind of build it from scratch. And what I did is I had a deep belief in what I was doing. So helping people, I studied marketing. So I realized that, you know, getting in front of the right customers was going to be really helpful for me. And then I took a risk that again, I'm not advocating. I'm just sharing. As more people know. I took out more credit cards. So I was already in, and I just doubled down. In fact, I applied for every credit card that would take my application. I got as much credit as I could get. I got about $35,000, if I remember right, in total credit. I maxed all those cards out, um, betting on myself that I was going to be able to make it work. And I uh, used that money essentially partly to live off from, you know, because I didn't have any money, you know, I didn't have any income necessarily when I started my first business. And I spent money on marketing, right? I mean, and I was willing to take the risk at that time that, you know, if this works out, like I'm going to be able to pay this back, you know, if it doesn't, I might have to spend the next 10 years, you know, working some other job to pay it off. But I mean, I had a high conviction of what I was doing and I had a high conviction that it would work. And the biggest reason I had that conviction is because I had that mindset of, mm-hmm. you know, I was not going to fail because I didn't work hard. And then I wasn't greedy about my lifestyle. Most of us, if we don't know the term, there's this term called opportunity costs, right? why don't you start your own business? Ah, I can't give up. Right now I've got my mortgage and I've got three kids, got this, I've got that. right? And so I need at least X thousands of dollars a month just to make ends meet. And I can't go start a business because I either don't have that much saved or I don't want to give up this like, cushy job I've got, right? whatever it might be. So we're afraid to chase an opportunity because of the cost of the opportunity. And again, I was young and I had nothing to lose, right? There was no opportunity cost because I was giving up nothing, you know. I was taking a risk and I wasn't having to step away from something. I never let my lifestyle get expensive. You know, I was living in a essentially low income housing for old people. My back then girlfriend at the time but we essentially just like begged and pleaded our way into a apartment community that was all old people, like 55 plus communities. Most of our neighbors were like 90 mm-hmm. just so we could afford, like having a place that was relatively safe, you know, cause we had a newborn kid and I drove a Ford Explorer. It was so old, it had rust holes in it and it didn't have any power steering. So honest felt like I was going to like blow my shoulders out when I had to make mm-hmm. a sharp turn. Cause it was so hard it made this horrible noise that everybody'd stare at me. And None of that bothered me, right? Because like, this was, again, part of that. Like, I only spent money when I earned it. Yeah, you know, I borrowed a bunch of it that I probably mm-hmm. shouldn't have in hindsight, but you know, again, it worked out. So that was a little bit about like, you know, my first experience thinking about now. Eventually it worked out, right? So eventually I paid off. In fact, the first thing that was paid off that debt. So before I paid myself, I paid off those credit cards because that's some high interest money. Everyone who has credit card debt knows what I'm talking about. Real high cost of capital. I couldn't get any SBA loans. There was no loans for people like me back then. I had nothing to collateralize a loan with, you know? I had a $1,500 rust bucket of a car and negative you know negative 580 bucks in my bank account. Like, I wasn't exactly a good candidate for a small business loan. But I paid off those credit cards. That was really important. And then I put myself on a salary of $2,000 a month. And I lived on that for quite a few years, a lot longer than people would realize. It wasn't until I was 27, and I'd been essentially an entrepreneur for five years before I paid myself more than 24000 bucks a year. I put every single penny that I made beyond that back into the business, just reinvested, reinvested, reinvested. And it was weird. One day I kind of dawned on me that like my business bank account had a few hundred thousand dollars of cash in it. Like, (laughs) even though I wasn't spending it, even I was aggressively investing back into marketing and hiring people and expanding my office and all this stuff, I kind of hit that point where I was like, whoa, I'm like making a lot more money every month than I'm spending and this business bank account got pretty large, you know? And my quarterly tax estimates all of a sudden were more than my annual take home pay, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like kind of a weird thing. And that's the first time I finally kind of decided, you know what, I'm going to make an investment. I'm going to start investing money because now I finally had money. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but I think it's important that to put all this into context, this is like seven years of probably 70 to 80 hour weeks, no vacations, no nice cars, no jewelry, no nothing. I mean, it was like, hard. And, and this is why I think like entrepreneurship is a tricky path. You're telling someone use entrepreneurship as your path to financial freedom, because you never know about a successful entrepreneur until they're successful, right? When they're grinding. <laughs> Today, we see some people, I, I see my fellow rising grinders on social media. So special shout out to everybody who I see pushing it. They're up early, they're grinding, they're just doing what it takes. They know that it's not you know, as glorified as people make it out to be. But it was seven years of that, right? I could have probably. Started loosening the reins up after five years and started chilling a little bit, but I, I pushed myself. And interestingly, my first real big investment was not stocks and bonds, even though that was a business size and it was buying another business. Hmm. You know, And that was my first big investment, buying another business. And part of it was because the way I looked at business, anybody who's a business owner on this, you're a business owner, I know. So we can't help, but we know the ROI of our own business, right? If I put $100,000 investment in my own business, I have a pretty good belief that I'm going to turn that into a lot more than hundred thousand dollars. And I don't believe that, you know, capital markets are necessarily going to always be as friendly. And so I was a big believer in investing in other businesses. So I bought a business, a property and casualty insurance business, by the way. So talk about a random thing, mm-hmm. the whole business, no one even spoke English as their primary language. It was a uh, 200 miles away from the primary language spoken. in The office was Polish. Second language was probably German. Third was Russian fourth with Spanish, right? English was not in the top five. <laughs> I only speak English for the record, but I bought the business based on the P and L, you know, and the belief that, Hey, this is a really solid business, right? It's generating X, you know, certain amount of revenue, mm-hmm. certain amount of profitability. I looked at the multiple and I just did very basic mathematics. Like, wow, I could buy this business. I financed a big chunk of it, put sort of the minimum down I had to buy it. And then Paid it off in two years, right? Took every single penny of profits, paid the thing off, right? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, at that point, it was like, wow, I've got this other business now that I own. It produces a lot of cash flow and it doesn't have any debt. And so we used that cash flow to buy the building that it was in. Mm-hmm. Eventually, really took great care of the employees. Eventually, I gave half of the business to the employees because they were such a big reason why it was so successful. And my business partners, this day, I actually love them dearly. And I still own it. You know, <laughs> 15 years later, it is the best investment I've ever made in my life outside of my own business that I run and operate. Right. But that thing has been paid back probably a hundred times over and it was a good smart move. So money, right. Getting fluent money, right. And thinking about people's financial literacy, you know, for me, a lot of it in the early days was like understanding debt, unfortunately, the hard way, and then aggressively paying it off before I paid myself. By the time I had enough money to invest in something, I invested in what I knew, by the way. I was a small business owner, so I knew small business. And so I invested in another small business. And I can say that, you know, you fast forward till today, I have a much more, I think, maybe slightly traditional looking view on money. I still rarely use debt. I'll use it occasionally, you know, but I'm kind of old school and that I don't use it much. Mm-hmm. I just found it was real painful. Psychologically, it was really hard to have like five times more debt than you have income and you're mm-hmm. paying 20, 30% interest rates on it. It's Anyone who's going through it, I feel for them. Anyone who's you know, dug themselves out of it, you know, congratulations, it's, it's hard as hell. But it's shaped kind of the way I view things now. So I mostly pay cash for stuff that I buy, mm-hmm. which some of my financial advisor friends would be like, you're crazy. There are these things where you can create arbitrage by borrowing at one rate and earning a certain rate. I'm like, okay, you know, that's fine. But psychologically, you know, I think people need to do with money what works and what they feel comfortable with so two real simple rules nowadays you know once you have money and you think about how do I invest make sure it works and make sure you feel comfortable with it because there's lots of stuff that probably works but if you don't feel comfortable with it then you won't stay committed to it if you don't stay committed to it it eventually will not work because you'll freak out and you'll panic and you'll sell at the wrong time you know and this is one of the dangers people have if they try like day trading or you know mm-hmm. buying some hot meme stocks or whatever like seems like a good idea Until you've worked so hard, you know, for that money and you start losing it and then you freak out, right? And so being disciplined, when it comes to capital markets, my investment strategy is pretty boring. You know, I have a mostly index fund portfolio. I buy and hold. I buy stocks that I love. So I have maybe 40, 50 stocks of companies I love. I don't pay that much attention to their fundamentals, just their companies I love and respect. Products that I use every day, and I just hold them. You know, again, mm-hmm. I don't look at them because I love those companies. Now, if there's a day that I'm like, you know, I really hate Apple, don't like their laptops, they suck. My phone is a piece of junk, right? Then I probably won't own the stock anymore. But I've just owned it for years because I'm like, I look at my life and I'm like, man, I'm talking Emily through a MacBook Pro. I use my iPhone. Mm-hmm. I've got an iTunes subscription and Apple <laughs> Plus, Apple TV on every TV in my house. Maybe I should own that stock. Yeah. You know, and so, so people make things a lot more complicated than they need to, but. I invest that way. In spite of being in finance for 20 plus years, I have financial advisors. So anybody who thinks they're so bright that they don't need one, shame on you, right? I mean, like I'm a fairly smart guy connected to about anybody I wanted to get connected to in the land of finance and technology and venture investing and private equity. And I still use an actual financial advisor for a lot of things. I have tax advisors, legal advisors. I believe that again, as you're able to afford to get help, go get help, get good help, right? Mm-hmm. Great help pays for itself a hundred times over. And so that's kind of how I think about money nowadays. And I'm still passionate about buying businesses. I mean, Emily and I know this because we talk a lot, but mm-hmm. I have a substantial amount of my net worth tied up into businesses I either own and operate, like Altruist, or things I'm passionate about, like golf courses. Mm-hmm. I have a couple <laughs> golf courses nowadays. And this is all kind of like, you know, a long journey, but these are all things that, work for me and I feel comfortable with. I like them. Like they make me feel good about money. I'm not having to borrow and get uncomfortable to do the things that I do around investing. And I'm really, really grateful for that. And I never think I'm smarter than anyone else. So I'm not going to try to do it all on my own. I'm going to get help when I need to. And I think that investing is this really beautifully unique thing. You know, money is a beautifully unique thing. And I'm hopeful that you do a bunch of these interviews this month of April because I think one of the best ways for young people or anybody, it doesn't matter if you're young, like you could be 50 right now, 60 right now, right? And, but if you're kind of feeling insecure about money, it's to know that there's a lot of people, a lot of very successful people out there that we're all insecure about it too. You know, Mm -hmm. like I had a really crappy relationship with money for a long time because I didn't have any of it. And then when I did have it, I didn't know what to do with it either, Mm -hmm. right? Like I had to learn and I had to hire great people and I had to study it. And so it's kind of one of these things where There isn't like a playbook that everybody should follow. Like it is a very kind of interesting experience. We're all going to have a lot of really interesting biases that come from where we're from, how we were raised, you know, how we made our money. When you live like I do, my friends, they look at me, I'm a cheapskate, but I don't gamble like at all. Like you won't find me. I won't drop 50 bucks casino. And the reason is I feel like I've worked so hard, you know, it was never easy. I get real uncomfortable losing 50 bucks because I had to work Mm -hmm. really hard for that money, you know? And so it's interesting, you know, when we think about like, I have no problem taking the risk of buying a business that some people think I'm crazy about because I know it, right? That's my home bias. But I'm super uncomfortable thinking about that idea of gambling, even though again, like everything we do has a certain level of risk. So it's sort of therapeutic to talk about this stuff, Emily.
0: No, I think this is great. And I think it goes back to the principle that you stated that kind of like words to live by or what you live by. And I just summed it up as this, make sure you're comfortable before you commit. And if you're not comfortable doing something, like you said, you won't be able to commit to it. And I think that not only applies to investing, I think it applies to, you know, dieting, training, anything that you're doing, because if you're not completely comfortable with it, then you will have trouble committing. And that is something to be true to yourself with, by, you know, knowing what you're doing. I have one question left for you that I wanted to just talk about, because you mentioned a little bit about equity compensation. And I just wanted to have you just talk a little bit about Equity Comp and its place in financial literacy.
1: Yes, this could be uh, an entire episode about Equity Comp, but I'd say that (laughs) you know, if you're fortunate enough to be in a job where your employer offers equity and you believe in that business, I mean, one, I would say if you have the ability to only work someplace that you have a deep belief in what they're doing, then do that, you know? And if that place happens to offer equity compensation, learn the equity compensation plan. And again, in many cases, it's very sensible to participate in it, right? In the world I live in nowadays, the startup world, a lot of employees get offered ISOs or RSUs, in some cases, later stage companies, restricted stock units. The ISOs, by the way, is incentive comp, you know, from typically early stage venture-backed companies, but they don't have to be venture-backed, they could just be a private enterprise. And the way those options work, right, is you get an option grant. It's not free equity, but it's a grant. It's an option to buy in, usually at a value that is potentially going to be much lower than some future liquidity value. And we see a lot of people that do really well when they do that, but it is a risk, right? Because the startups don't all succeed. A lot of them don't. In fact, I'd say many early stage startups, probably the majority of them, their equity is worth nothing. So you got to be careful. But I think that if we look at kind of the new way to wealth in the United States, new way, a big, big portion of that wealth is made by people who have equity in the companies they work for. So when we see these companies going public, like Pinterest and Zoom, and obviously there's like much bigger companies, but even like now with SPACs, you know, that are going public, you know, these are creating a lot of new millionaires and multimillionaires and decamillionaires that would have never made that kind of money if they were just employees. Right, So I think if you have, again, the right opportunity, it totally makes sense. Now, the other form of equity comp is when you own your own equity, right? When you start your own business. And again, it's not for everybody. I totally get that. It's entrepreneurship is this weird thing where you almost have to be a little bit of a masochist. I think there's a reason why guys like Emlyn and I get up early, go to the gym, like, you know, at, at our advanced ages, now that we're getting up there and getting some gray hairs and all that fun stuff, right? Like, it's hard but it's that same grit that I think drives people to be like, you know what? I'm going to work hard. Like physically, I'm going to work hard on my relationship. I'm going to work hard at being a great parent, right? Like those things are oftentimes the same skills. It's not like some secret, you know, weird club you have to be in to be an entrepreneur. It's actually just like almost finding joy in doing things that are challenging and worthwhile. And if you have that kind of passion, like, and you feel like you can take a risk on yourself, like that type of equity is pretty powerful, right? Because you not only can control your destiny, but you know eventually you can, if you choose, sell that equity, right? And you can't do that if you don't have it. And so I think there's a, a, like a long discussion around stock ownership in private enterprises. But certainly, if you're in an area where there's opportunities to get hired at companies that offer equity, you believe in that company, you believe in that product, it's probably a good idea to strongly consider taking them up on that equity offer especially if it's against something that you really, really believe in, like you love and are passionate about. Don't let that passion blind you. <laughs> I guess as a, yeah. <laughs> as a disclaimer because sometimes, you know, we'll just sort of emotionally follow something down to zero, but it's, we gotta be careful on that. But absolutely, I would say that in my life, um, if it were not for ownership in different companies, I definitely wouldn't be able to live like I do. And so I obviously am a strong advocate of that. If you are an entrepreneur Try to find ways to give your people, your team, equity in your company. When we started my current company, Altruist, we carved out 25% of the company to be owned by the employees because I felt very strongly that if we build something as big and meaningful and it's really successful, like I want everybody that was part of building it to be rewarded significantly. So if you're an entrepreneur, like don't be greedy, like, you know, getting an unbelievable team of incredible people around you is going to help you grow it a lot faster. You know, as our friends start would say, you know, payment equity, you know, mm-hmm. make
0: sure that they get paid for that hard work because it does take a village. Absolutely, man. This is awesome. And I think that you're absolutely right. We got to have some more, we might have to have a equity compensation financial literacy talk because there's, yeah, you know, we got your RSUs, your ISOs, you got all kinds of different things that I think are very, very important and need to be talked about more because I think that there are definitely ways to, to change the trajectory financially for your entire family if it's done right. So that's definitely something that we want to. And as you know, Jason, this is the Minority Money Podcast. We're trying to change the complexion of wealth. And I think that is something that can definitely help people if they get that understanding with their equity compensation. But I can't thank you enough for coming on. I ask everybody this questions when we get off, but I want to make sure I ask you a little different one because we're talking about financial literacy. What would you say to the listeners that are listening now as it pertains to financial literacy and your journey, what kind of words would you give to people to encourage them?
1: Yeah, so if someone's still at the very early stages, right? They're at the, what I call the struggle phase, right? Where money is a stressful thing because they don't have a bunch of it. Never stop believing in yourself. You know, like you have to be your own biggest advocate because there are very few handouts, but believe in yourself, like you can do it, right? And then commit to the action it takes to do it. If you're accumulating money and you're worried, like, how do I optimize this stuff? Right. Probably one of the most important things you can do is get help. The best place for help is not TikTok. It's not YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> you know, find somebody who really knows what they're doing. Obviously, talk to my friend Emily right here as an example, like, right, as someone that can help you actually make those smart choices. If you're affluent, right, if you've been fortunate enough, you know, there was an analogy this, you talk about a simple analogy, man. One of the early clients I had was an actual rocket scientist. He worked in aerospace company, but literally designed the propulsion systems. One of the most brilliant people I ever met. We had this simple analogy about his own life. He said, Jason, you know, I feel like I've already got the game won. It's the fourth quarter. I just got to take the knee, let the clock run out. I don't have to throw another pass downfield to score one more touchdown to pad the score. I just need to make sure I don't lose. Right. And what he was referring to is the fact that like he'd already made a few million dollars. He was very successful already. He didn't need to get greedy. He was content with just winning the game, like hit for what he wanted to accomplish, that he had enough, right? That's a different mindset. So these are like three different parts of your journey. And again, like if you're at that point in your journey, again, probably one of the most important things you can do is get help. When you've already reached that point, trying to go it alone is really, really dangerous. They always say that more people die descending Mount Everest than ascending Mount Everest, right? So you've reached the top, get that guide to help you kind of like make sure that you keep you know, all of that money that you have that you don't make a really bad choice and have to find yourself going back to work or something like that, right? So lots of different places that we are in life, but I do think that, you know, again, the early stage stuff, it's all about conviction. It's on you, but you can do it. As you're accumulating, get some help so you can accumulate it at the right pace in the right places. If you've got it, keep it. Get a guide to help you get down
0: the mountain. Like that's really, really important. This is awesome. I hope that everybody's just soaking up all this knowledge that you're dropping right now. I really appreciate it. Jason, thank you for all of your help for me personally, and for sharing all of these nuggets of information with the guests and the minority money community, man, it's been an honor and a privilege just to be your friend. And I'm looking forward to this long, long, long relationship that we continue to grow. And thank you. Thank you for everything.
1: Likewise, man. And it's a real pleasure. And I love the mission of what you're doing, changing the complexion of wealth and just couldn't be more honored to be part of one of
0: your shows and hopefully offering a few ways to help. Awesome. If people want to get more of Jason Wang, what social medias are you most active on? Where can people find you? Probably on Twitter more than I should be, you
1: know, (laughs) so you can find me pretty straightforward at Jason Wang, pretty straightforward. It's W-E-N-K. And it's pretty easy to follow what we're up to at the business level with Altruist. So that's at Altruist
0: Corp. So yeah, thanks for the plug. Awesome. Hey, as you all know, this is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown.